Okay, if I could get your attention. <laughs> um, in case you didn't know, this is the Monday Bible study. And we are here for 10 weeks in a row, hopefully, God willing. And uh, we're going to study uh, the books, the letters, the epistles of Peter, First and Second Peter. And, and uh, as I said, 10 lessons in a row, 10 Mondays in a row. And um, it, it has a theme that kind of has a special emphasis for me right now. Because I don't know if you're aware, you probably are. The, um, a couple of months ago, I was uh, told I had... Uh, Leukemia. I was trying to think of a softer word, Jeff, but... <laughs> But that's it. And uh, what I've found in going through all the tests and all the hardship and trouble and spending so much time in doctor's office and clinics and all the tests they do and being poked and prodded and harpooned and everything else for about the last six weeks is that um, God can actually do something good and actually do something that results in joy uh, and a building up of your character in the worst of circumstances. So um, that's, what's, that's the way I look at what I'm going through right now, is that uh, I'm learning patience before this. I didn't have any patience with anything, I don't think. I uh, certainly wasn't, didn't have any patience with standing in line or waiting. Uh, but now I have to go to this clinic where you wait typically for about an hour and a half before they even call you. And can you imagine being there all day? Well, so I've been going through this, and uh, I have learned patience. I'm now the most patient person in the world. <laughs> and I uh, actually had empathy for other people. I didn't have that before. <laughs> and I could go through a long list of uh, characteristics that I've, that I've uh, improved on because of this situation. So um, I can... Uh, Praise God and rejoice in, in this uh, in a spiritual sense. I know in a physical sense, you know, there can't be possibly be happy with something like this, but I think spiritually uh, it's really been a good thing for me and will continue to be. Uh, as you know, uh, in each lesson, my plan is, I've already written them, so surely I can do it, uh, but to send you a, a message, of kind of a copy of what I'm going to teach, what I'm going to say every Monday, uh, I'll send that to you uh, sometime the week before. So it'll be typically be about three pages. Hopefully you got the, the, the lesson one in your email. Um, if you're not getting my emails, it's because I either have the, uh, the wrong address for you <laughs> And uh, like a guy the other day said, well, you're not sending me your emails. And I said, well, I, I'm pretty sure you're on there. You didn't change your address, did you? And he says, well, yeah, I changed my address. <laughs> so if you changed your address or you haven't given it to me, make sure and write it down legibly, not in hieroglyphics, but legibly, so that uh, I can put you on the distribution list and you'll get... Uh, the weekly message, plus I have uh, study questions that I send out every week as well, and you'll get those. 
Uh, so uh, that's the uh, method of operation. Uh, today, uh, in uh, 1 Peter 1, uh, we're going to explore kind of the, the, the greeting and who, who the author is. Uh, the theme, as I said before, is rejoice in the midst of suffering, or uh, the Christian's response to innocent suffering. And uh, he will make that distinction in chapter 2 and 3. He's going to say, now, if you deserve what you're getting, that's one thing. But uh, the church that he, churches that he was writing to uh, really were being persecuted. It was during right at the time when Nero, the crazy emperor of Rome, was blaming all of his problems on Christians. You know, they were a, like a scapegoat. And so that was the beginning, really around 64 to 67 AD, was the beginning of intense persecution by the Roman Empire. And so the church was uh, facing some real hard times. Uh, the Romans were com the soldiers were coming after them. Uh, it became illegal to have... Um, Christian material. I mean, it was, it was getting rough. And so he's writing to them to say, you know, there can actually be good that can come out of this. And what you need to realize is that God is still in control. He means you, for you to be exactly where you are, and he's going to bring something good out of this. So persevere. Um, respond in faith. Rejoice in what God is doing, not in your worldly circumstances, right? And so I, I can't think of anybody that's probably suffered more than uh, Jeff Foxworthy when he had his colonoscopy. <laughs> so. All right, um, when you think about the author of the epistle, Peter, uh, obviously it was Peter, you know, and you, we've all heard of him and a lot of the old uh, Christian movies you know, he was kind of one of the lead characters in all the biblical movies and stories and everything. Uh, and you probably also heard of him called Simon Peter, and there's a reason for that. And I thought the best way to tell his story was in the first person, to give a kind of an autobiography as if I was him. So if you'll uh, cut me some slack and let me uh, refer to everything as if I was Peter... I was born on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee in a little town of Bethsaida. My father was Jonah, thus I was distinguished from other Simons by the name Simon Bar-Jonah. Bar is Hebrew for son of, so Simon the son of Jonah. My brother Andrew and I grew up in uh, the fishing business, the commercial fishing business, uh, and we took it over when we were uh, in our early 20s. Uh, and we partnered with James and John, the sons of Zebedee, neighbors. Uh, and uh, when I got married, we moved our home to Capernaum, which was a little bit larger city, and it had a much better fish market for the fish that we caught. Uh, we all had limited education in that we could read and write and do the basics and everything, but we were not scholars. We were outdoorsmen. We were fishermen. We were rough and ready guys, we, we did hard physical work. Uh, we fished mostly at night with nets, drag nets, uh, that would typically be about 300 feet long and weigh up to 1,000 pounds. Uh, we would spread them out between uh, several boats, and uh, putting them out would take a while and a lot of work, and then hauling them back in and then putting them out again, and we did that all night. So 
we'd go home and sleep during the day and go back out the next night because the fish typically came up to the water when it was cooler at night. Uh, and when we were still young in our early 20s, the word came that an amazing prophet was at the Jordan River giving life-changing sermons, and everybody was excited about him. And thousands of common people were going out to hear the message of this man. Uh, he was known as John the Baptist, because every time people were convicted and wanted to change their life um, and repent of their sin, uh, he baptized them uh, as his disciples, and uh, it as a ceremony that demonstrated that repentance that they said that they had uh, from sin and uh, it, when they come up out of the water supposedly they're saying my life is now renewed and I'm going to lead a different life and he would also preach that the Messiah was coming and everyone needed to repent and prepare themselves for the coming of the Messiah and on one of our trips down to see him my brother Andrew came running up to me and he said, we have met the Messiah. He is here. The Messiah that all the prophets predicted and that John the Baptist said was coming, he's actually here. We met him. Uh, John the Baptist identified him at the river, introduced him by baptizing him, and John said he heard the voice of God confirm this, and he saw the Holy Spirit descend upon him, and we know him as Jesus of Nazareth. And so we ran to meet this man, and Andrew introduced me, and to my amazement, Jesus acted as if he'd known me forever. And uh, he renamed me. He said, Simon Barjona, you shall from this point on be called Peter. And of course, the, the word is a Greek word, Petra, Petro, which means the rock. The rock. And I said, wow, I mean, I barely knew this guy. He's already nicknamed me. <laughs> and then from then on, Jesus used this name as a name of affection for me. He would always call me that when he was happy with me. Uh, and I could feel the affection and love when he, when he used that name. But whenever I messed up, he used my other name, uh, revert to Simon Barjona. Uh, and I could usually tell if I was in the doghouse or the outhouse by the name he called me. And believe me, I was in the outhouse a lot. Uh, so uh, my nature, my, my natural tendency, my characteristics, I was impulsive, I was overeager, I was outspoken, I was impetuous, and I was even told I was obnoxious <laughs> by James and John. Uh, and they also told me, you know, you're seldom right, but you're never in doubt. Right? Y'all know anybody like that? And for three years, in, as we followed Jesus around in his ministry for three years, I led the league in being rebuked and admonished and humiliated by Jesus. My feelings would always be hurt, and uh, I would be a little bit angry about it. But now I understand what he was doing. He was working on me. He was changing me. He was teaching me, molding me. I'll give you a few examples of uh, the admonishment. Um, the big one was when Jesus was teaching us, the last year of his ministry, he was teaching us that he had to go to Jerusalem to be crucified. And when I heard that, I blurted out, God forbid it. 
will not allow it, because in my uh, human worldly mind, you know, that just didn't compute. And immediately Jesus rebuked me with the harshest words imaginable, get behind me, Satan. Can you imagine someone that you respect saying that to you? It crushed me. Uh, again, Jesus was teaching uh, another time about forgiveness, and I opened my big mouth, and I said, well, how many times do we have to forgive these jokers? About seven? Would that be enough? And Jesus says, no, 70 times seven. And then he told a parable revealing how wrong I was. And another time, we were uh, on the boat late at night, crossing the lake, and here comes Jesus walking on the water. And of course, that blew us away. We couldn't believe what we were seeing. And while everybody else was staring at Jesus, I blurted out, command me to walk out to you on the water. Naturally, I was just wanting to think about myself, as I always did. Uh, and Jesus simply said, come. And I stepped out on the water, actually walking on it. But I noticed suddenly the wind and the waves, and I got scared, and I began to sink. And Jesus grabbed me, and we got in the boat. And again, a powerful rebuke. Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Why did you doubt? And of course, that, was, that crushed me. I couldn't believe, you know, somebody would rebuke you for not being able to walk on the water. You know, like, that's my fault, right? Uh, but I learned now that he was giving me a lesson in faith. So I was a whipping boy in all these stories. Uh, but later, after Jesus ascended to heaven, I understood the purpose. I had learned, I had experienced the need for faith, the all-important a need for faith, and the value of faith, along with the humility that it took to have the kind of faith that Jesus uh, could use. Uh, I don't have time to tell in detail all the thousands of experience I had with Jesus, but just a few of the stories that molded me and shaped me and changed my life and prepared me for the ministry. Uh, it began with, uh, you can find the story in Luke 5, uh, before we started following Jesus full time. Uh, we were fishing on the lake and we came in in the morning, we hadn't caught anything, and we were drying our nets out and folding them all up, and here comes Jesus with this big crowd, and he's teaching them right there on the shore of the lake, and when he finishes, he turns to us, me and uh, my brother, Andrew and James and John, and says, put the boat back out, put your nets out, and you'll catch some fish, and we said, are you kidding? Do you realize how tired we are? And by the way, we're the fishermen around here. You're just, I don't know what you are, but we're the fish. we're the ex. So, uh, but out of respect for him, we put the boat back out, put the nets back out, and sure enough, uh, the nets were so full of fish that it began to sink the boat, and we had to call our partners to bring out the other boat, and we filled that boat up too. It was an amazing experience. And uh, as we pulled up to shore, uh, Jesus uh, told us, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And it struck me to the core that what Jesus had done was show us what was really important. I'm going to enter your world, Peter, and do this miracle that will blow your mind because I want you to come follow me and be in my world. And when we saw what Jesus had done and he said, come, follow me, 
We just dropped everything. We had a big investment in boats and nets and equipment, and we had this huge haul of fish. I mean, it was a fortune in fish. And you think we'd normally take them right to the market, but we were so convicted by what Jesus had done and what he said, we just left it all behind, walked away. And from that point on, we followed Jesus closely and uh, were his disciples, his closest disciples. In uh, uh, Mark chapter 5, uh, we were with him and he took us inside a house and we saw him raise a girl who had been dead. You think that wasn't mind-blowing? Uh, and then in, in Matthew 17, he took us up to the top of Mount Hermon, the largest mountain in the Middle East, and we saw him transfigured into all his glory. And not only that, we saw Elijah and Moses. They're alive. And we, we were amazed, and I got a preview. I, I can look back now and know that we were given a preview of our future glory in heaven and what Jesus in his glorified state would be. And skip forward to the Last Supper, John 13. Uh, once again, uh, Jesus was giving a lesson in servanthood and serving, and he was washing everyone's feet. And of course, me, I thought I'd be real cool and be the guy that said, oh, no, not my feet, you know, because I'm too humble to have my leader wash. And, and Jesus says, you know, if I don't wash your feet, then... You're out of here. <laughs> anyway, oh, then wash everything, you know, in that case. And uh, I look back again now and I realize that he was teaching us to be servant leaders. To be a leader, to be great, you have to be a servant. It's completely opposite from the ways of the world. And then again at the Last Supper uh, in Matthew 26, Jesus, uh, as we were finishing up there, said, before this night's over, you will all fall away. And of course... You know me. I said, there ain't no way. I'll never do that. That will never happen. Uh, no matter what, I won't deny you or fall away. Yeah, those are pretty smart things to say, right? Uh, we know now. Uh, and sure enough, as we go out to the Garden of Gethsemane and the soldiers come to arrest him, first thing I did was pull out my sword and lop off this guy's ear. <laughs> And I think, boy, I got a good one in on that guy. You know, I thought, I'm defending my Lord here. And Jesus rebuked me for that. How can this be, I thought at the time. And I was humiliated in front of all those people. My peers and then all these uh, religious people and the soldiers and everybody. And Jesus said, do you not know that if I wanted to protect myself, I could call down legions, legions of angels to protect me? This has to happen. And I look back now and I realize that Jesus engineered this whole thing. He knew exactly, he had foreknowledge of everything that was going to happen. And they weren't arresting him. He was giving himself up. They wouldn't uh, eventually crucify him. He would be the guy that gave himself up to be crucified. All according to the plan of God to redeem mankind to be the necessary sacrifice, to be the substitution that we need to die on the cross for our sins so that our sins could be atoned for. 
Uh, but here I am trying to prevent it. And I was so angry and so humiliated by all this that later on I was accused of being his follower and I denied him three times. And then guess what? The cock crowed, just like Jesus said. And I looked up and I saw him staring right at me in the distance. And I was crushed. This was my breaking point. This is where I came to the end of me of everything being about me and my agenda and doing things my way. I was crushed and I skulked away in my humiliation. And as you know, Jesus was crucified. And Sunday morning, we were all there together in the upper room and we were just crushed because we thought that was it. We had thought he was the Messiah. We had thought he was going to set up the kingdom of God. And now... What's to become of all this? What's to become of us? And lo and behold, Mary Magdalene and the other Marys came in and said, we just came from the tomb. It's empty. And an angel told us that he's risen from the dead. John and I could hardly believe it. And we ran out there immediately to check it out. And sure enough, the tomb was empty. And then later on, Jesus actually appeared to us. We saw the risen Christ with our own two eyes. We're eyewitnesses of the resurrection. And you can imagine how excited we were and the impact that it made on our lives. And so uh, he, he told us later to go on up to the Galilee and he would meet us up there. And so we went up there looking for him and uh, waiting. We decided to go out and fish. And you can find it in John 21. We were out in the boat fishing and then we saw Jesus on the shore. I dove into the water. I was so excited and swam to Jesus. And then when the boat came in with the fish, uh, we were cooking some for breakfast. And Jesus said to me, same question three times. He said, Simon, do you love me more than these? And I said, you know I love you. I was, I was like, what do you mean? Of course I love you. What is, he, what is he doing to me here? And he said, then tend my lambs. Then he asked me that same question again and said, shepherd my sheep. And then again, the third time, and said, tend my sheep. Well, I realized, especially now, that I had denied Jesus three times, and I wondered what was you know, how I was ever going to get back in good with him. But what he just did was he affirmed me three times. I had denied him three, and he had affirmed me three times and given me a commission, a stewardship to serve him for the rest of my life and even predicted what kind of death I would have, a martyr's death. And so we went back to Jerusalem after that, and uh, we waited because Jesus said the, the advocate, not the advocate, the uh, helper, the Holy Spirit is going to come. I'm going to send him to you and he's going to help you. We didn't know what that meant, but we were in the upper room and sure enough, the Holy Spirit came upon us. We saw it, we heard it, and we were filled with the Spirit and the Spirit uh, convinced us, led us out into the street, and it was at Pentecost, so there was many, many people there, large crowd, and I preached my first sermon. Before that time, I couldn't imagine going out publicly and preaching 
in the street. And I couldn't imagine that people would actually listen to me, right? I'm just some fisherman from the Galilee, and I'm here in Jerusalem. Uh, but I did it, and the crowd gathered. They were amazed uh, because we were all uh, being revealing uh, the manifestation of the Spirit and everything we were saying and doing. And so the crowd gathered, and I gave the sermon, and lo and behold, 3,000 souls were saved. 3,000 people came to Christ that day. That was the beginning of the church. Before that day, no church. Then, instant church. Literally, it was born right there on the day of Pentecost after that sermon. Um, and then in Acts 3, we did, uh, the Spirit enabled us to do a great miracle, healing a lame man at the temple, and that gave us opportunity for another crowd to form, and 2,000 more people were saved. So all of a sudden, you've got a church just overnight with 5,000 people, 5,000 members. Uh, it was an incredible experience. And there was so many uh, Jews coming to Christ that the Jewish leaders became alarmed and they arrested John and I. And you can find this in Acts chapter 4. Uh, and I got to preach a sermon to the Sanhedrin, to the Jewish leaders. You think that wasn't exciting and amazing? I had the boldness to speak to these guys who had the power to have me crucified as well as just like they did with Jesus. Um, but to my amazement, instead of uh, crucifying me, uh, they let me go with the orders that I was not to say anything to anybody again about Jesus. Well, I told them, look, I have to. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that God has given among men by which we must be saved. And by the way, should I obey God or you? And they kind of looked at him like, what? And he said, obviously, I'm going to obey God. We cannot stop speaking about Jesus and what we saw and heard. And after that, there were many arrests and many trials and much opposition there in Jerusalem uh, by the religious leaders. Um, and then eight to ten years later, the persecution spread us out to Judea and Samaria and the Galilee, and the word was spreading, but we really hadn't gone out to the Gentile world yet. We didn't get that. You know, I'm Jewish through and through, and I've, we're God's people, and I can't imagine him having any affection or wanting to help any of you dummies, right? It just didn't occur to me. You know, it's all about me, right? But... God impressed upon me with dreams, and you can find this in Acts uh, chapter 10 and 11, that the gospel was to go out to the entire Gentile world. Um, and so I had this vision of all the unclean animals that Jews, Jews were not allowed to eat, and I realized that Jesus was saying, all that's changed. The old covenant, the old ceremonial law is done away with. Now that Christ has made the ultimate sacrifice, there's no need for any of those sacrifices or for any of that uh, ceremonial law to continue at all. Uh, and so I, told, I did what God told me. I went to Caesarea and shared the gospel with Cornelius. 
a Roman centurion, he and his whole family. And uh, believe it or not, they all believed in Christ and became saved that day. And I could tell the manifestation of the Holy Spirit in them. So it was clear to me that that had happened and that they also were saved. And from that time on, we started going out, the apostles started going out to Gentile areas and uh, spreading the world. Uh, in the uh, early 60s, there began to be much turmoil and fighting in the city of Jerusalem. And so the apostles, uh, having been, gone, been going all over the Mediterranean world, pretty much left Jerusalem and the Jerusalem church at that time. Uh, I ended up, I had gone to missionary journeys in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, uh, and had relationship with a lot of churches there. And then I ended up in Rome about, about 64, 65 A.D., and in 67, I was martyred by crazy Nero. Uh, and uh, he actually was going to crucify me, and I said, I'm not worthy of that. So he crucified me upside down, um, all according to church history. So even though there's no historical record in the Bible of me after Acts 12, I continued to minister uh, until my martyrdom. And while I was in Rome, I wrote two letters to the churches in Asia Minor, which you have in your New Testament today. Um, so, turn to those letters, <laughs> and I'll revert to my old identity of Charlie. And so, in 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, we see Peter writing to, and I think we've got a map, uh, do we, Larry, of the churches? You can see um, down here to the lower right, Jerusalem, on the map. So that's where we had, uh, Peter and the guys had been for a long time before they ever went out. Uh, then they started moving up into Syria and Antioch, and then into Galatia, which is uh, Asia Minor or Turkey. At that time, it was a Greek-speaking Greek world in, the, in that area. Uh, and it was being ruled by the Roman Empire, but it was really Greek culture, Greek language, uh, Greek religion. And so they had never heard about Christ, hadn't heard the gospel. And Paul uh, had three missionary journeys going through that area. And, and I also spent some time up there. And in Galatia uh, is the area uh, of the churches that I'm writing these epistles to. And they were coming under persecution and they uh, needed a letter of encouragement to tell them that you need to expect this. This is part of living in a fallen world uh, and being on the side of God. This world that we live in is ruled by the adversary of God. Uh, for his purposes, God has given the adversary a certain amount of power. And so this world is being ruled temporarily by him uh, to give people a choice. And as long as that is occurring, this is going to be a troubled, broken down, problematic world in which the followers of Christ are going to be persecuted and mistreated harshly. Uh, and so expecting that, you need to look at the spiritual 
life that's going on in your life and praise God for what He's doing spiritually, right? And also as you do that, as you uh, rejoice in your innocent suffering, uh, God will reward you and take care of you. He won't get you out of the trouble, but He will help you endure it and persevere through it. And so he writes this letter to them. He identifies himself as the author Peter. Uh, that was his Greek name, of course, uh, the rock. Uh, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who reside as aliens. By that he means we're aliens in this world. We live here, we're in the world, but we're actually citizens of heaven. We just haven't realized it yet. So in that sense, they're aliens in this fallen world. They're not a part of it. They're separated from it. And they were scattered throughout Pontus and Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia Minor, Bithynia, all uh, in that area that we talked about there in Asia Minor. And he says in verse 2, according to the foreknowledge, so who's he writing to? Who's he talking to? The churches. And who are the people in the churches? And he says in verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, so he knew beforehand who was going to be in these churches, that they were going to come to Christ. He had the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work. So Sanctifying means being set apart. So he set them apart for his purposes, to be holy. So by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, so the Spirit of God was at work in their life, changing their life from the inside out. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, that you may obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood, so that blood of Christ is the price that was paid for our sin, so that we could be atoned, so that we could be completely forgiven and declared justified by God. That's who it's written to, all those who are saved by the blood of Christ. And he says, may grace and peace, two wonderful things that everybody wants. What's grace? It's unmerited favor. It's getting a gift that you don't deserve. And we all need that. We all want it. And that's what Jesus is to us. The grace of God. And also peace. Before Christ, we were alienated from God and knew no peace. But now, we've been brought and reconciled to Him. And we have peace with God. To the fullest measure. And we're not talking about a worldly peace. There is no worldly peace. You know, if you have worldly peace now, just hang on. That'll change. I promise you. The other side, your opponent, is just rearming. Right? Last time I was in Israel, we said, well, there's nothing going on. The uh, Palestinians aren't doing anything. Y'all got peace. And the guy said, no, nah, they're just rearming down there. As soon as they build up all their rockets and stuff, they'll, they'll, they'll start again. Don't worry. There's no peace. Uh, so he says, uh, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again. So there's that phrase that Jesus used with uh, Nicodemus in John chapter 3. That you must, you were born physically, but you must be born spiritually as well. And that's all that means. Don't make too much of that. That's what he means. And because you have Jesus, whether you know it or not, you've been born spiritually. 
And he's the, the active agent in this process. He's the one that came into the world, the incarnation. Uh, he lived the perfect life. He was crucified. That atoned for our sins. So that's why he says he has caused us to be born again. If he's our Savior, it's because of what he has done that we're saved. And we are born again to a living hope. A hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Uh, that word hope is really important to the message, uh, as you see here. Uh, and biblical hope is totally different than worldly hope. Worldly hope is kind of like a pipe dream. I hope I win the lottery. <laughs> right? But biblical hope is something is desired and expected. Uh, so um, we have a definition. There we go. Hope is, ex is expecting and anticipating what God has promised to do in the future. So it's really linked to faith because faith is trusting God now in the present, but hope trusts God for the future. So we're looking forward to heaven. We're looking forward to the coming of Christ. Uh, and when He comes, we also have the promise, as He was resurrected, we know we also will be. His resurrection uh, proves everything he said is right about everything he was doing, and it proves that we also will be resurrected uh, as well. And so that's the hope that we have about the future, and that keeps us going now. And we also, part of that hope is to an obtain, obtain an inheritance. And what's our inheritance? It's an inheritance which is imperishable, it's the spiritual reality of our resurrection unto eternal life in heaven where we rule with Christ in the kingdom of God. That is our inheritance. We can look forward to that. It's going to come. We're going to get it. Uh, it's where our hope is. It's the promise of God. And it's reserved in heaven for us. Jesus told his disciples, I got to go. They said, no, don't go. He said, I got to go. And I'm going to prepare a place for each one of you, a mansion, and you can come and you will be with me forever. And so that's what he was talking about figuratively. Uh, that we have a place reserved in heaven, uh, an inheritance which is imperishable. The inheritance you get now on earth, if you get one, is perishable. It'll fade away. It'll be spent. It'll be lost uh, you'll lose it uh, eventually. And, but this inheritance is eternal and unfading. So it's reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now that word salvation is used three different ways in the Gospels uh, for salvation from the penalty of sin, which is death, so that's your initial salvation, and then salvation from the power of sin, so the power of sin is still at work in our mortal bodies, we still have desires, and, we, and he, the Spirit helps us be saved from that, but the ultimate salvation is when we're resurrected into our glorified state, and that's what he means right here. Uh, that salvation that will be revealed at the end, at the last time. And in this, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, this is his point that he's been trying to get to. I know you guys are suffering, and 
You need to be rejoicing in the hope that you have and the inheritance that you have. And for all that Christ has done for you, you need to be rejoicing because you are now distressed by various trials. There's a paradox there. Their physical material world is suffering terribly, and yet, as Christians, they're told to rejoice because God actually has a purpose in this. He's going to teach them something through this, and He's going to change their life through it, and they can look forward to uh, the hope that they have uh, when Christ comes back. And verse 7, as they rejoice, it'll be the proof of their faith. So they're being tested as well. We're all tested every day in that sense. Our faith is tested. Are we going to trust God or are we going to go our own way and do our own thing? Uh, so that faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire. So the analogy he uses is when you get gold ore out to separate the other parts of the rock formation out, you heat it up. And you end up with the pure gold. And that's what he's saying. The same way in your life, God is going to test you that way. Going to heat up your life so the real gold would be revealed. And it may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So when Christ comes back on Judgment Day, it'll be all revealed. And you will obtain as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. So that's what we're looking forward to. That's where our hope is. That's our inheritance in heaven. And there's really kind of a, a mystery here, you know, to people in the world of what God's plan. And I remember, you know, when, when my situation popped up last summer, I mean, I'm human, right? So I said, this isn't fair. I don't deserve this. What have I done? You know, come on. It's just natural, right? Uh, and so it does seem to be kind of a paradox, and it seems to be a mystery to you when it happens to you. But what we find out as we go along, and especially as we study the Bible, that uh, in Christianity, in biblical Christianity, the way up comes by going down, by humiliation. That's actually a good thing. Believe it or not, we all need to be humbled. It's the best thing that it could ever happen to any of us. And there is an inversion in attaining the glory that is promised to us. The promises coming uh, from Christ, the resurrection and the glory, that comes only after this present day season of suffering and trouble. Suffering precedes glory and who's the most clear and obvious example of that? Jesus Christ. He had to suffer and die for the glory to become a reality. The worst thing that ever happened, the most unjust thing that ever happened, was the crucifixion. Because he's sinless, he deserves nothing that happened to him. And yet he was unjustly killed. But what's the greatest thing that ever happened? The crucifixion. It was somehow simultaneously the worst thing that ever happened, but also the best thing from a spiritual standpoint because it redeemed mankind. 
And that's why we have to look upon suffering as well. God can make something good out of even this. And so we step out in faith and continue to live and endure and persevere through these trials. Let me close in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for blessing us with your word and, and the encouragement that we get as we read uh, Peter's letter to the churches uh, based on everything they were going through. Uh, and we pray, Lord, that we would take it to heart and we would uh, be prepared when trouble comes because it will come. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.